This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Tom, how's your Bible scholarship? Do you remember Genesis? It's the one at the start of the Old Testament. Yeah, um, let there be light, that kind of thing, right? Yes. And right after that, right after let there be light, it says that God divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And that was the first day. So there you have, in like the second paragraph of the Bible, basically, a designation of a unit of time, the first day. And God kind of invents the week at that point as well, doesn't he? Because he creates stuff for the next few days, you know, the animals and all that kind of thing. And then on the seventh day, he rests, which sort of suggests there's something special about seven. But is there anything special about seven? If you leave aside this Judeo-Christian idea that there's a Sabbath every seven days, well, the seven-day week is pretty arbitrary. There's nothing in nature that says we should reset after seven rotations of the Earth. No, it's not linked to anything astronomical. And in the past, other cultures have had a five-day week or an eight-day week or a 10-day week or no week at all. And it's only relatively recently in history that humanity has standardized on this idea of a seven-day week. The idea of the 24-hour day is another arbitrary one. The only reason we divide our day into 24-hour-long segments right now is because people thousands of years ago used sexagesimal counting systems. And people have tried to change that too. After the French Revolution, they tried 100-minute hours and 20-hour days to try and make everything more decimal, but that really didn't catch on. So these arbitrary numbers, seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day, they don't come from nature or from any natural sense of time. They come out of the human need to overlay our rules on time and then to let those rules govern our lives. We've been doing that forever. We impose artificial concepts of time on ourselves in ways that we sometimes barely even notice anymore. The trend over the centuries has been for us to measure time more and more precisely and to divide time into smaller and smaller increments and to have time be more present in our lives, on our wrists and in our pockets, always there notifying us of itself with little TikToks and chimes and vibrations. But there are some people out there who'd like to turn the clock back. Somewhere in West Texas right now, deep inside a mountain, there's a very different type of timekeeping device being built. The goal of the clockmaker who conceived of it was to make a clock that ticks only once a year, with a century hand that advances only once every hundred years, and a cuckoo bird that comes out to sing once a millennium. But to understand how we've reached a point where this project has become necessary, where our relationship with time has become so fraught and unhealthy that we need to totally reconceptualize it, we need to go back to the beginning of timekeeping and find out how it brought us here tick by tick. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. We have clocks in our brains. We use them to do all sorts of things. Your circadian rhythms help you know when to fall asleep and when to wake back up. 
You use your sense of time to figure out if a pause in my speech is lasting longer than normal. Your brain's more precise time sensors can even tell you which direction a sound is coming from by measuring the milliseconds between when it hits your left ear and when it hits your right. Everything we do, whether it's catching a ball, whether it's walking, whether it's having conversation, whether it's playing music, is really temporal in nature. So the brain is an inherently temporal organ. The brain is a time machine because not only does it tell time, it conceptualizes time, it predicts the future, and it has this ability to allow us to mentally project ourselves. Dean Buonamano is a neuroscientist who studies the way our brains understand time. If you think about the way that ancient people would have measured time, it was really mostly about space and motion. The rotation of the Earth on its axis was what defined the day. The orbit of the Earth around the sun was what defined the seasons. There were tides and cycles of the moon. These are all ways that motion and space helped us mark the passage of time. And in fact, the way your brain understands time might be by using the same tricks that it uses to understand space. Much of the time we talk about time we use spatial metaphors, right? So I will say to you, it's a long day. Or looking back, I shouldn't have done that. So we use spatial metaphors to describe time. And one theory is, is that the parts of the brain, the circuits of the brain that evolved to help humans and other animals conceptualize space were co-opted or used to allow us to understand time. For a lot of people over the course of human history, there wasn't much need to measure time beyond knowing what agricultural season it was or whether it was daytime or nighttime. Beyond that, why bother? So it's interesting to ask, to primitive man, how would a clock have changed his or her life? Why would early men have an advantage of knowing what time of day it was if by the minute or by the second? And the answer is it probably wouldn't. There was no trains to catch. There were no movies to see, and there were no meetings to have. So it's interesting to ask, well, what was the function of the first clocks? The sundial was the first technology we had that let you mark time within the day so you could see how close you were to noon or how close you were to sunset. And for a really long time, the sundial was the only way that you could do that. But sundials are really imprecise, and they only work when the sun's out, which in some parts of the world, cough, cough, is not all the time. And um, what I think is really hilarious is that right back, you know, 2,000 years ago when people are using sundials, even then people are starting to complain that time is starting to become too regimented. And one of the first examples of this is a Roman playwright of the 2nd century BC, a guy called Plautus. And he said, basically, to hell with whoever made the sundial, to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. And he wrote, when I was a boy, my belly was my sundial. So he wanted to just kind of, you know, go with his gut, literally do things like have lunch when he felt like it. Um, So you can see here the beginnings of people starting to rely on clock time instead of a more natural conception of time. And you can also see the beginnings of them complaining about it. Natural time is fluid. Think of the gradual transitions of the sun, the moon, the tides, the seasons. According to Dean Buonamano, Time also seems to be fluid in your mind. It's not staccato. You don't have some kind of ticking thing in your head. That was a theory of how the brain told time. It was thought that maybe the brain had an oscillator and it had some circuitry to count the ticks of that oscillation. Um, That turns out 
to probably not be the case. A grandfather clock counts each time a pendulum swings. A quartz watch counts each time a quartz crystal vibrates. An atomic clock counts each time a cesium atom oscillates. But there's nothing like that in your brain, nothing that's ticking, nothing that's counting those ticks. Your brain's time is fluid. And our first efforts to mark off precise smaller measurements of time, they were also fluid. They relied on actual fluidity, things like water flowing through a spout or sand pouring through hourglasses. The Romans used water clocks in their legal courts to measure 20-minute intervals, and they used them to set a limit on how much time people would get to make their arguments. They had a phrase, to lose water, which meant to waste time. And if you lived in a climate where water freezes, you could use sand in an hourglass to replicate the water clock. This was how we measured time for hundreds and hundreds of years. The gradations of the sundial, the flow of water or sand. And then time switches. Sometime around the 13th century, the mechanical escapement is invented. And it's that kind of grasshoppery leg that goes into the gears of a clock so that the gears can only advance one tooth at a time. And that's what creates the tick, tick, tick of a modern timekeeping device. That escapement is what transforms time from the fluid motion of a sundial shadow or a water clock flowing into a staccato, mechanized tick-tock. And from that point forward, timekeeping becomes about precision and acceleration and the world moving faster, punctuality, obligation, a duty to be on time. In fact, some of the first mechanical timepieces in Europe were the clocks in churches, and their purpose was to ring bells that would summon monks to prayer. And the word clock actually comes from the old Dutch word for bell. And basically what the church was making at this point is essentially alarm clocks for monks. The clocks didn't even have dials to look at for the first hundred years. They just had bells to announce the time. And you can see with these bells that are summoning the monks that mechanized time right from the outset is about making sure you're where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. As technology moved forward, it became about measuring time in smaller and smaller increments so you could be in the right place with more and more precision. The famous Wells Cathedral clock in England was first built in 1392, and as the years passed, it began to chime more frequently to broadcast more precise information about the time. By 1500, it wasn't just striking once an hour, it was striking every 15 minutes. By the 17th century, with the advent of the pendulum, it becomes common for clocks to have second hands. And with the second hand, we arrive at a unit of time so small and precise that it would have been meaningless to people a few generations before. A unit of time that would have held no purpose for most of humanity, for most of history. Clocks become more reliable and more accurate. And now time is becoming something you can start to trust and standardize. Clocks become the most complex instruments of their day. The chronometer is invented in the 18th century to carry aboard ships. And now the big pendulum clocks are giving way to portable, spring-driven clocks. The clock shrinks to pocket size. And when you have a clock in your pocket and later on your wrist, it means that time is suddenly everywhere, always. The idea of punctuality comes into play now because it's become possible to expect that other people will know the correct time. And soon enough, hateful stereotypes appear, claiming that certain people, specifically minorities and women, lack punctuality and are never on time. And of course, there's a network effect that happens. The more that people keep accurate time at their houses, at their workplaces, on their persons, the more that there are public clocks on churches and in the town square. The more everyone knows what time it is, the more useful clock time becomes. 
but it also becomes impossible to evade. Each time some new person gets a watch and links it up to the master clock of society, it becomes harder for everyone else to escape the oppressive presence of time. The historian Lewis Mumford argued that the machine that drove the industrial age wasn't the steam engine. It was the clock. Because clocks let you synchronize people and moving people to where you need them to be exactly when you need them to be there. Being able to schedule trains and ships, putting a timer on everything we do, that drives productivity. But it can also make us feel like society has become one giant clockwork mechanism with all of us enmeshed in its turning gears. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With every advance we've made in timekeeping technology, the goal has been to master time. But along the way, it feels like time has mastered us. In the modern world, it's difficult not to be acutely conscious of time. If you're rushing for a train or a plane, there's this hard deadline that you just have to meet. And we have online calendars where every minute is accounted for and other people can create meetings. They can literally grab chunks of your time. Your computer displays the time in the corner of your screen all the time. Right, and so do our cars. It's so easy to add clocks to things these days. And when we're driving, our navigation apps tell us how long our journey will take and when we'll arrive. And we can see that changing in real time. And we'll, you know, something will happen and we'll go, oh, God, I could have arrived 10 minutes earlier if I hadn't been for that thing. If you have a Kindle, it'll tell you how many hours are left in your book. Lots of people listen to podcasts and audiobooks at faster speeds. They can fit more in. And music and podcast apps tell you how long every track is. So because we can measure and manage our time so precisely now, it feels as though we're constantly being asked to decide, is that the best use of your time? But these kinds of advances in the technology of time must have been even more disorienting for people in the past. For a while, the only way to assure that people would meet somewhere at a designated time was to have the meeting at dawn, because that way everyone would know when you needed to be somewhere and it would be clear if you were late because the sun would already be up. Before trains, there weren't a lot of hard deadlines that you had to meet. Trains forced people to standardize time and even to make time zones. Meanwhile, things like photography, which suddenly allowed you to freeze a moment in time, or motion pictures, which let you run images more quickly or less quickly, run them backwards. Those kinds of things led to H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine, which coined that term and was the first time we thought about having a technology that would allow us to jump around in time. Technological and scientific advances made people think about time in completely new ways. And this split between the scientific approach to time and people's lived experiences of time culminated about 100 years ago with an encounter between two notable figures of the early 20th century. 
In April 6, 1922, Einstein, who we all know as one of the most famous physicists of the 20th century, confronted a philosopher, a man who at that time was more famous than Einstein for his theory of time. Jimena Casales is an academic who wrote a whole book about this encounter. The story goes that Albert Einstein came to Paris to give some lectures. And in attendance at one of those lectures was another luminary of that era. This man was Henri Bergson, a French philosopher, and he was such an important intellectual that heads of state opened doors to him. The philosopher Henri Bergson was in the audience at this Einstein lecture, and Bergson took the opportunity to challenge Einstein, to start an argument. The thing that Bergson got heated about was one particular thing that Einstein said. This sentence serves as a detonator that's very provocative. Il n'y a donc pas un temps de philosophe. There is therefore no time of the philosophers. There is no time of the philosophers. What Einstein meant is that he cared about time as it was measured by scientists, not as it was interpreted by chin-stroking humanities types like Bergson. Before the debate between Einstein and Bergson, before those early decades of the 20th century, if somebody wanted to learn what time is, they would most likely read a philosopher. They would probably read Bergson. They would probably read theologians or poetry uh, novels. Those other disciplines also were believed to have something to say about time in a way that was real and true and meaningful. By 1922, when Bergson and Einstein have this spat, it was the scientists who seemed to have the most relevant things to say about time. Einstein's theories of relativity, which changed scientists' whole understanding of the relationship between time and space, had already been published. Einstein was a global celebrity and seen as the ultimate authority on what time was and what it meant. Science seemed to be edging closer and closer to an empirical understanding of how time worked. But as scientists began developing these theories about time that were beyond the ability of most humans to fully understand, and as science became able to measure time in increments so small that they were beyond the ability of humans to observe, this split developed between the time of scientists and the time of philosophers. And it's left lots of people feeling uneasy. Even now, people cry out to Jimena Casales in the throes of deep anxiety. I very frequently get get emails uh, by, by people who write to me in the middle of the night and they say, you know, the Professor Canales, does time exist? And, you know, explain to me this, this, this paradox about relativity and entropy. And, and I, I, jo- I joke that I've become a bit of the, the Dr. Ruth of, uh, of, of time. But these issues are existential and they reflect intimate divisions. In one sense, Einstein was right. Science has now made all sorts of hugely important discoveries about time that are of great use in realms like theoretical physics. And science has invented atomic clocks that keep time so accurately they won't gain or lose a second over hundreds of millions of years, with all sorts of applications for things like global positioning systems, network timing protocols, mobile phone networks, encryption, and so on. But when we think about some of the concepts that Einstein proposes, they're completely removed from the way that we encounter the world. For the average person, the basics of timekeeping, of seconds and minutes and hours, haven't actually evolved much since the advent of a reliable wristwatch. 
in terms of clock consciousness, I think we haven't really changed that much since the late 19th century. Alexis McCrossan is a history professor who studied the interplay between timekeeping and culture. We measure our time, we think about our time, we are anxious about our time in much the same ways as Americans who had well-functioning clocks and watches. So even though we keep our time by our cell phones mostly now, so the technology has changed, I think the consciousness and the attitude is, is almost exactly the same. Throughout the 20th century, we invented new contraptions that promised to be time-saving, but they rarely had that effect. So what happens when you get electric home appliances? So you can beat eggs with an electric egg beater, and you can vacuum with an electric vacuum cleaner, and you can wash your clothes in an electric washing machine. So what happened? Like, did, did women suddenly have more time because they were no longer bending all of their time on this arduous, time-consuming housework. No, actually, housewives didn't have more time. Their standards of living just increased so that people expected to have clean clothes every day and nice homemade cakes every night for dinner and perfectly clean houses every day. So this is the story of time-saving technology, right? It it saves us time so that we can do more. And I wonder if there's any parallel with timekeeping technology where we can be more precise so we don't waste time, but then we expect every minute to be filled? I think you've... Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the condition of modern life, right? We expect every single minute of our time to be filled. And a day that goes by in which there are empty spaces of time is sensed as a not very good day. When I'm thinking so much about whether I'm wasting my time or using it profitably, I'm losing a perspective on the particular time of life that I happen to be in. I'm losing a perspective on the 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 era that I might be living in. I'm losing perspective on um, natural time. I'm losing a kind of perspective on time as something other than a resource or a scarce resource. It just seems to be, it seems to be limited to me. So for instance, we don't think very much about eternity or um, about other ways of living in time than in this very incrementalized world of seconds, minutes, quarter hours. Tom, are you familiar with the marshmallow test? Yeah, that's where a psychologist offers a child a marshmallow and says, if you can wait and not eat it right away, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. And then they go out of the room and then they come back in and see if the child's eaten it and whether they've got any kind of, you know, impulse control. And of course, a lot of little kids just can't wait and they just eat the marshmallow. Right. And at the core of this test is time. Can we think beyond the immediate here and now to give us a better outcome over the long term? And I think we as a society are 
having our own marshmallow test, if you will. Something like climate change needs to be dealt with over generations. It requires long-term thinking where the work we do right now is going to benefit our great-grandchildren. But we're having trouble not just eating the marshmallow that's right in front of us. We get stuck dealing with these short-term problems that we're facing. All the normal time spans don't work. If you said, okay, well, here's your four years to solve a problem like climate change, people just think you're crazy. But if if you gave someone 400 years to solve climate change, you can imagine how you might start to lay the groundwork and, and do that. Alexander Rose is the executive director of the Long Now Foundation. He's taken on a project that has its roots in an essay written back in 1995, when a computer scientist named Danny Hillis proposed a brand new kind of timekeeping device. So many advances in timekeeping technology seem designed to focus us more narrowly on the here and now, on the business of the hour, the minute-to-minute ebb and flow of the day. But Hillis wondered if we could invent a timekeeping device that makes us think not in terms of seconds and minutes and hours, but in terms of decades and centuries and millennia. A device that could meld our technological advances in timekeeping with our philosophical experience of time. Hillis had previously been known for creating supercomputers, where the whole point of the technology was maximum speed. But this new clock he wanted to build was meant to move incredibly slowly. The idea was to build the slowest computer after he'd been building the fastest computer. And he envisioned a clock that would tick once a year and bong once a century, and the cuckoo would come out once a millennium. The Long Now Foundation has taken up the project of turning Danny Hillis's fanciful idea into a reality. The device they're building from Hillis's prototype is called the 10,000-year clock. That time frame was chosen by him and the board uh, because it's about the length of the, um, you know, since the last ice age, basically, in agriculture and cities has started. It's kind of our technological human civilization moment. And... We want to have something that's about the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years. And the clock is tracking the next 10,000 years. But if we think about ourselves in the middle of a 20,000-year story, at least, rather than at the end of a 10,000-year story, the clock is, is hoping to do that. The idea of the clock is to jog you out of your focus on the present and get you to focus instead on the more eternal, on things that might extend beyond your lifetime beyond your direct influence to the generations that will follow. There's the great Jonas Salk quote, um, you know, are we being good ancestors? Work on the clock has already started deep inside a mountain in West Texas. The project has gotten a reported $42 million in funding from Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who also took a mountain that was on his property and donated it to the cause. Alexander Rose says the clock will be finished in years, not decades, but it is an ambitious undertaking. The clock will be 500 feet high. Its pendulum will be six feet long, and its gears will be eight feet in diameter. And the designers have had to find ways to solve all sorts of technological problems that come up when you try to make a clock that will tick for 10,000 years. So the clock will harvest energy, for example, from the temperature difference between day and night to keep itself running. And it will use lenses that poke out of the mountainside to focus on the sun at high noon. And that heats up a piece of metal which will expand and that will set the clock back in line with solar noon whenever it gets a look at the sun. And that will keep it calibrated. So they're really thinking about how do you make this thing work on very long timescales? scales, longer than any human civilization has ever lasted. If you're going to do that, you have to figure things out, like how do you keep a clock lubricated for 10,000 years so it doesn't gum up? Uh, One of the more 
interesting problems. And the most difficult one that was known about at the beginning of this project was really how do you make bearings that last and run on this timescale? And uh, when I started this project, there was exactly the right thing that that had just come onto the market, uh, and it was the all-ceramic bearing. And unfortunately, at that time, they were only in satellites, and they cost about $50,000 each. But uh, over the last 20 years, uh, they have come drastically down in price, and now they're in fidget spinners and uh, rollerblades, and they cost about $5 each. So uh, we're now using, in a way, one of the oldest crafted materials in the world, ceramics, uh, but in a fairly high-tech way that allows uh, the clock to operate without lubrication and um, and really without noticeable wear uh, over the 10,000 years. Tom, when you think about things that force you to contemplate a longer time frame, to think beyond your own lifetime, what comes to mind for you? Well, I suppose I think about um, astronomical things because obviously, you know, they've got very long time periods. I think about something like Halley's Comet. I saw it last time it came into the inner solar system in the mid-80s and I was a teenager then. And if I'm lucky, I'll get to see it next time it comes around, you know, 75 years later from that, if I make it into my 90s. Or I think about things like cathedrals, which took, you know, many generations to build. And you see these great cathedrals all over Europe and you know that the people who laid the first stones wouldn't have seen the finished building. Yeah, for me, it's pondering the age of the Earth. There's this great image from the writer John McPhee, who's written a lot about geology, where he suggests you spread your arms out as wide as you can and think about that distance from fingertip to fingertip as representing the entire existence of the Earth. And if you took one pass across your fingernail with a medium-grain nail file, you would erase all of human history. So the 10,000-year clock is a very conscious effort to get us thinking in that way. And you'll eventually be able to visit it even though it will be very remote and will require a hike to get to it. But even if you don't visit, the idea is that just the fact that it exists serves as a metaphor that shapes your perception. The real goal is to change the way people think about time and to create a kind of a mythic experience that will be a touchstone in storytelling and um, and people's experience. And if we, you know, if we made a mantle clock or we wrote a white paper on long-term thinking, um, it doesn't really do that. So you kind of have to build something uh, that will be referenced throughout time. And um, the, the hope is that we're building at a b- kind of a monumental and experiential scale that even if not everyone visits it, they'll kind of have known stories about it and heard stories about it. Um, and they can hold it in their mind as this, uh, this artifact of deep time. So, Tom, once this 10,000-year clock is finished, would you want to visit it? Yes, I would like to, actually. And I think it's it's rather nice the way it links back to where we began and the idea of clocks as things that summon monks to prayer. I'm not a monk and I wouldn't go and pray, but it would be a sort of pilgrimage, I think, to see it. I've heard about it for years. But, you know, there's no rush. They'll finish it eventually. I've, I hope, got a few more decades to live. So, you know, I'll get round to it in good time. Yeah, I, I would love to go. I'm looking forward to going, actually. And, you know, other than this this 10,000-year clock out there on the mountainside, there are some other ideas about how we could bend our perceptions of time. We all know how time flies when you're having fun and time drags when you're bored. So it's clear that our brains are capable of manipulating how we experience time. So what if we invented some kind of drug or brain implant that could drastically slow our perception of time so that we could fit like a hundred years of experiences into one week of actual elapsed time. Does that idea appeal to you, Tom? 
Yeah, I like the idea, but I think if we have a drug that like slows down how we perceive time, I'm going to be able to say read books for what feels like a hundred years when in fact it's only a week. But I'm not going to be able to go scuba diving or swimming for a hundred years because I have to do those in real time. So um, that sounds kind of awesome for some things. And if you live the life of the mind, I think that would be totally great. But if you really want more time on the ski slopes, then that's not really going to work. Well, there's still one more solution if you want to escape the tyranny of clock time. So there's a book called The Geography of Time by the late psychologist Robert Levine, who traveled to lots of countries around the world and did things like measuring the speed that people walk down the street. And he found that time can slow down or speed up depending on what culture you're in. Different cultures do things quicker or slower. And recently, there was a really extreme example of this, a town in Norway that decided to completely turn off its clocks. There's a little Norwegian island north of the Arctic Circle where in the summer the sun stays out for literally months at a time. And in the winter, the sun disappears for literally months at a time. And as a result, the people there have always had a sort of weird relationship to time. And this year, they decided to formalize that weird relationship by presenting a petition to the Norwegian parliament proposing that the island be turned into a time-free zone, meaning time would not exist there. There would be no clocks. Things like schools and stores and municipal offices would operate on totally ad hoc schedules. This might just be a publicity stunt in reality, but it is an idea that I think appeals to a lot of people. So, Tom, what do you think? Is this doable? I like the sound of that because one of the things I notice on holiday is that I don't put my watch on and I don't care what time it is. And then, you know, halfway through the day, I'll say to my wife, what time is it? And she'll say, I don't know. And I don't care. Isn't it great? Um, So I like this. But on the other hand, if I wanted to like send a letter or go to school, it might be a bit annoying if the post office was closed or the, the school, you know, hadn't opened because the teacher hadn't shown up. So I think as long as you're not relying on other people to do anything or be anywhere at a given time, that sounds totally awesome. (laughs) But uh, if you're actually trying to get stuff done, it might not be the greatest place to be. Well, I like the idea a lot. I think we should meet up there. How about we schedule? Well, I guess that doesn't work, does it? (laughs) I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merritt Jacob, technical director at Slate. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show too.